trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for making us part of your day. For whatever reason, if this is an escape, if it's a chance just to hear a familiar voice uh, speaking ideas with which you resonate, if it's just because you're lonely, hey, I'm here for you. And I appreciate you being a part of The Brian Hyde Show today. On my uh, website at thebrianhydeshow.com, you will find my daily show notes, which uh, today is no exception. I publish them every time I post an episode. And in those show notes, you'll find articles that I've talked about, guests that I've had on that day, or you'll also find links to my sponsors who make this possible. I do. I mention them every show, and, and, and there's a good reason for that. They are the ones who make it possible for me because of them. I am able to focus on looking for, and I mean continuously, looking for the best information that I can share with you and then uh, going about uh, sharing it. I mean, to a lesser extent, it also helps me to help other people get their voices out there. But thanks to MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com. Man, if you have read any of the articles on some of the uh, potential food shortages that are coming, this is something that I think uh, might be worth your time. Also, pure-light.com, hslammo.com, and last but not least, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. All of these great sponsors can be reached through the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Why do I do what I do? Well, in a nutshell, it's because I have trust issues. And there's a good chance that the fact you're listening to me right now is because you have trust issues as well. And I'm talking particularly trust issues in the information sources that you access to better understand the world. I'll just say it. The media, traditional media, has hit a new low in terms of trust on the part of the public. In fact, some media outlets are actually using the word crisis to describe this trend. Just saw a report on Axios today that uh, it's interesting. I'm going to share a couple excerpts with you just because I want you to see there's a blind spot in much of the traditional media today. They can't understand why it's important, they say. It's very important that people accept what we say as truth. And yet they have this curious inability to report facts without judgment. And that is what is destroying the public's trust in what they say. According to the study from Axios, they say that uh, trust in the media hits a new low. Trust in traditional media has declined to an all-time low. Many news professionals are determined to do something about it. Wait till you hear their solution. Why does it matter? Well, they say it matters because faith in society's central institutions, particularly government and media, is the glue that holds society together. Okay, I have a slightly different take. Trust in government and media is the glue that holds their narrative together. That's what's concerning them. Their narrative is falling apart like a soup sandwich because people are starting to see through it. And that glue was visibly dissolving a decade ago. Now, for many millions of Americans, it's disappeared entirely. So, by the numbers, for the first time ever, fewer than half of all Americans have trust in traditional media. This is according to data from Edelman's annual Trust Barometer, shared exclusively with Axios. Trust in social media, by the way, 
has hit an all-time low of 27%. 56% of Americans agree with the statement that journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. 58% think that most news organizations are more concerned with supporting an ideology or political position than with informing the public. And when Edelman repolled Americans after the election, the figures had deteriorated even further with 57% of Democrats trusting the media and only 18% of Republicans. I mean, the graph that they show is pretty dramatic, and it definitely shows, yeah, the numbers are falling. So the big picture is those numbers are echoed across the rest of the world. And believe it or not, they're mostly not a function of Donald Trump's war on fake news. As vaccine rumor hunter Heidi Larson puts it, we don't have a misinformation problem, we have a trust problem. News organizations have historically relied mainly on advertising income, and as those dollars flow increasingly to Google and Facebook, that has created institutional weakness that shows up in trust data. Now, reversing the decline is a monster task, one that some journalists and news organizations have taken on themselves, but they're calling for help. Care to guess who they're reaching out to? America's CEOs. Now, here's the catch. Mistrust of media is now a central part of many Americans' personal identity. It's an article of faith that they weren't argued into and can't be argued out of. Is it sad that I recognize exactly what they're saying? I I agree with that. What they're saying. Former Financial Times editor Lionel Barber talks of factual reporting as a means of regaining the trust of the reading public. Axios has a stated mission to help restore trust in fact-based news. Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan writes that our goal should go beyond merely putting truthful information in front of the public. We should also do our best to make sure it's widely accepted. How does it work? Well, media outlets can continue to report reliable facts, but that won't turn the trend around on its own. What's needed is for trusted institutions to visibly embrace the news media. So they're asking for CEOs, in other words, the fourth branch of government. They're at or near the top of Edelman's list of trusted institutions. Now, by the numbers, 61% of Trump voters say they would trust their employer's CEO. That compares to just 28% who trust government leaders and a mere 21% who trust journalists. Bottom line, CEOs have long put themselves forward as the people able to upgrade America's physical infrastructure. Now it's time for them to use the trust they built up to rebuild our civic infrastructure. Not sure how I feel about that, but I I will say this. You've got to be the propaganda-proof person that you were born to be. You have to be able to think critically and think independently. There's no such thing as a news source or an information source that isn't biased in some way, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes I actually want to hear, what is the other side saying? I want to know, what are they thinking? Where are they coming from? Not because I'm looking to change my mind, but because I'm looking to broaden my perspective. And yeah, it's, you know, I've had some practice at it. My skin's grown pretty thick. But it's still hard when I bump up against, uh, you know, ideas that I feel like, well, maybe I'm not ready for that. (laughs) Or maybe I'm just not, you know, ready to consider that. It's still uncomfortable, and that's, that's okay. That's part of human nature. But the thing I absolutely cannot abide is the sense that, uh, hey, we need to make sure that whatever we're telling you is more widely accepted. 
well, why don't you make sure that what you're telling me is actually factual information sans judgment? Because that's where, where my trust issues first arose with media. And by the way, those issues came up nearly 30 years ago. And it was only after someone pointed out to me, you can see that they're spinning this story, omitting facts here, or maybe adding some spin, some hints of, well, this is what it obviously means, when in fact that isn't what it obviously meant. I don't know of any information source that you can, well, okay, I do know of one information source that you can absolutely take to the bank every single time. But that's usually the result of a personal spiritual relationship between you and God, and it has little to do with the media. As far as mass media sources, yeah, good luck. I can't think of a single source that I can say, oh, absolutely, I would trust everything they say. I know some journalists and some commentators and some sources seem to do a better job of sticking to facts rather than partisan platitudes, but I remain with a healthy sense of skepticism just in case because I don't want to be misled. So, if you have trust issues as I have trust issues, it has more to do with the fact that We have been kept from the truth, or at least misled or misdirected. And and when we get a little too close to what's what's an uncomfortable truth, just, you know, for for instance, the, the insistence that, hey, everybody needs to get on board and understand that the legitimacy of the last election is the most important thing that everybody can agree with. Well, I'd like to see some evidence to that effect. First, I don't think it was ever given a fair hearing. We were all told, shut up and don't ask questions about that. Of course it was okay. And it's getting, and you know, the people who are pushing this, and this is from the president on down, they're getting even more insistent. Now, the truth of the matter is, I don't know. Was there voter fraud? There seems to be some pretty powerful evidence that, uh, that warrants a second look. Not because Donald Trump deserves to be president, but just because somebody is insisting, you don't want to look at that. You don't need to see that. Take my word. Trust me. Trust me on this. I can't trust you. And the reason I can't trust you is because I saw how how far you were willing to go to bend the truth and to manipulate things to your advantage or your perceived advantage in trying to get the uh, former president out of office. I don't think he's the answer to our prayers But I'm just saying that those people suddenly got a conscience and suddenly everything they did was above board and honest. No, I think it's worth a closer look. And the fact that they're telling us don't talk about it, that just seems to confirm those suspicions. Stay frosty. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I feel better for getting that rant off my chest in the first segment. It's not that I hate the media. the, The one thing that I do hate, and I use this word pretty sparingly because I don't think it's a good idea to base your life on what do you hate, what do you what are you against? I do not like being misled. And I do not like the sense that someone is trying to prevent me from understanding what's going on and then gaslighting me and telling me, oh, no, no, you imagined all that. It doesn't set well. And I reserve the right to unplug from sources that uh, have proven themselves to be less than trustworthy. And I would expect you to be the same way. 
Now, having said that, that doesn't mean if I walk into a room, I recoil from CNN like a vampire would recoil from a bushel of garlic. No. I'm just cautious about accepting whatever it is that they may be talking about. And that's all I'm suggesting you do. Don't, uh, just because I'm a nice guy, don't believe what I say. Suss it out for yourself. Having said that, let's uh, let's jump out here. I've got a couple of different topics that uh, that I wanted to bring up. One of the toughest distinctions that I have had to learn throughout my life is how to distinguish between a process and a result. For instance, it's it's just within the last week or two, someone persuaded me successfully that you know what, freedom is not necessarily the result; it's the process by which we solve problems. And after thinking about it, I'm like, well, that makes sense. And once you learn this, it frees you from a lot of needless fretting over things that you can't control. I saw an article from uh, Isaac Morehouse. This was from everything-voluntary.com. The market has never spoken because it's always speaking. And I thought, what a great opportunity he has here to teach about free market economics. Isaac Morehouse says, sometimes people think they know the future because of the present. The price of X is higher than the price of Y, so X is more useful than Y. But he says this is a mistake. But it's an easy one to get sucked into. Markets are incredible, wondrous things, sending signals and incentives all across the globe and allocating resources always towards their highest valued use. Prices are the tools that reflect this, or the tool that reflects this, and they help us see and calculate. But the important word to hang on to in the above description is the is the word towards. So the freer the market, the better and faster resources move towards their highest valued use. But they never arrive there because there is no such thing as there. We don't know and we can't know the highest valued use of a resource. We can't know what that is. Instead, we can only see how people subjectively value it relative to the other alternatives at any given time. So alternatives change, preferences change, and a whole lot of other things change all the time. In other other words, they're never not changing. So resources are constantly seeking out higher valued uses in every moment, but never arriving. In fact, the more you know about markets, the easier it is to fall into the trap of thinking they've already found the best use of resources. Now, they work wonders. And if you've seen the process and understand it, you can have great confidence that it will do a better job than any other process or individual mind at continuing to maximize resources and create wealth at scale. But that doesn't mean at any given time every single resource is being used in a way that could be improved, that couldn't be improved upon. So to say no innovation is possible sounds dumb on its face. But that's the implied conclusion many reach after getting a little too wrapped up and seeing how the market as a whole operates so incredibly. Isaac Morehouse says they, they lose the plot. The market is never efficient. In fact, it only continues to move ahead because inefficiency never goes away. <clears throat> so innovation and arbitrage can continually happen. But the market is the most efficient process possible. In fact, it doesn't reduce surprises. It actually increases them. One of the things that makes markets so superior to central planning is that they allow for and reward totally unlikely advances no one could have imagined. Accidents can become innovations. 
And he says, knowing this, you've got to be wary of believing the market has spoken. It's always speaking, and it's never perfectly communicating what it's trying to say. Because the process is the thing, not the particulars produced by it at any given point. Now, hopefully that's not too abstract. I mean, look, we, I don't expect everybody listening is, you know, a seasoned economist nodding. Oh, yes, yes, I understand carefully and price signals and all that. Oh, yes. But to better understand, <clears throat> excuse me, why people make the choices they do, how we choose to interact with one another. Understanding the market, particularly free market economics. It's a great way to get a line on what's happening. Now, this brings me to another topic. Um, this, you know, as, as we've seen uh, earlier this week, the, the media narrative managers were trying to spin the protests in Cuba as anti-government. Actually, they were pro-vaccination, anti-government, because they said the protesters kept calling for freedom. Now, in clown world, that's all it takes to be labeled an anti-government extremist. You just have to invoke freedom or rights or an unwillingness to do what you're being told. <laughs> Welcome to the club, you anti-government extremists. (laughs) Now, the protesters apparently even used a symbol of white supremacy when they waved a U.S. flag to underscore their demands for freedom. I don't know about you. I'm I'm not what I would consider a flag worshiper. I have respect for the flag, but uh, I don't consider it so sacred. I know it's mass-produced. I don't think you can mass-produce sacred objects, but it's, it's a symbol of freedom. I choose to see it as a symbol of freedom. Some people, well, it's a symbol of, you know, slavery and oppression and exploitation. I guess it could be to some people. But for the vast majority of people, not just in America and around the world, it's a symbol of freedom. That's why you see the people in Cuba waving, the people in Hong Kong waving it. The sad thing is I think they are the people that we think we are and that they actually love freedom and they're willing to suffer for their love of freedom. You know, there's an interesting take on the limited government dilemma. I wanted to share that with you. This is from George F. Smith. He says, libertarians call for a free society, but few, if any, bother to define what this means or explain how to achieve it. Is a free society one with a limited government? If so, how do we keep it limited? Who gets to define the limitations? How many more people today even want a limited government? Not very many, he says, or libertarianism would be more popular. Now, the path to this limited government ideal is cleared by unlearning the fallacies government schools have taught us. But if the unlearning is consistent, the result will be to wipe government as we know it out of the picture altogether. And he says, not even libertarians want that. Truth be told, I don't see that as as desirable either. I think that there is a need for civil government properly limited civil government that governs with the consent of the governed and confines its duties to primarily upholding and protecting your God-given rights. Now, in this case, George F. Smith says, well, why else would there be a libertarian party if not to, you know, make sure that we're wiping government as we know it out of the picture altogether? He says, someone has to oversee this limited government to make sure it doesn't meddle unnecessarily in our lives. And the libertarians of the Libertarian Party are presumably the most fit for the job. But they're stuck with an inconsistent premise. Their sacred non-aggression principle seemingly must coexist with an agency of aggression. 
allowing some people to dictate to others in the form of laws, orders, or decrees. Now, for libertarian authors, he says that's not necessarily a bad deal. They get to expose the state's countless evils and other limited government libertarians love reading about them, even if it darkens their day. But he says it's not just libertarians who soak it up. Regular people who run their lives on common sense recognize criminality when they see it, even if they've never read Murray Rothbard. I have to stop here because we're up against the break, but we're going to come back to this in a few moments. Again, this is the limited government dilemma from George F. Smith. There is a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll take a very quick break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I want to give a special shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. This is a message of particular importance for my listeners in the state of Utah. And if you are one of the people who has uh, either, maybe you moved to the state of Utah recently, or maybe you're just moving around, you found it an agreeable real estate market, sold your home, you're looking for another place to go. Well, if you are looking to get your financing squared away in the hottest real estate market to probably of our lifetime, you need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's the one you want on your side because she has decades of experience in the lending industry. She knows how to make it happen without delay. And if there was a time to make it happen without delay, this is it. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And, of course, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can visit them at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George or call 435-703-4522. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I'm sharing this article from George F. Smith, The Limited Government Dilemma. And he's talking about how, you know, libertarians, uh, you know, they, they seem to have an idea of limited government, but he runs more to the thinking of, hey, at some level, and this is true, government has coercion, and, and it is coercion. I mean, you take the most civilized country that you can think of, and if you consider what is the most violent institution in that entire country now we're talking civilized we're talking peaceful prosperous everything's going great nine times out of ten the most violent institution in that government is going to be a courthouse because that's where laws are executed that's where punishments are attached for people who transgress the laws and so forth it's it's where fortunes are taken away where families are divided little something to think about He says, the situation for libertarians reminds me of eager researchers devoting their lives to finding a cure for cancer. A cure would be wonderful, but it would also end research funding. So if anarchy is the cure for the state, what would libertarians write about if it's gone? On the issue of cancer research, he says, see, Bill Sardis, we already know how to cure cancer. Suppose, though, he says, that anarchy isn't the ultimate political horror. What if anarchy serves as cover for a free market and a free society generally? Now, I feel like I need to go off here for just a moment because I know an awful lot of good people, I mean really good people, who have a very strong knee-jerk reaction to the word anarchy. 
So I just want to break this down, the etymological origins of the word and without archis, uh, or I don't remember the exact Greek root, but ruler. Essentially, it's talking about someone who is without a ruler or without the need for a ruler. Now, that's not the same thing as a person who is without rules or without laws or is just, you know, chaos embodied. When you think of people voluntarily coming together and solving problems, that's an example of anarchy. I think about the guy who crashed his motorcycle in Logan, Utah, several years ago, was pinned underneath a burning car. Now, there was a policeman on the scene. There's the authority figure. There's someone with authority to take charge of the situation. But mostly what he was doing was just keeping people back. Stay back. Stay back. Stay back for your safety. And the crowd finally realized the guy is under here. He's going to die if we don't do something. At first, a couple of people and then more and then more. And then finally, a couple dozen people swarmed around the car, lifted it up. There was enough guys. They got its wheels off the ground and someone reached under, grabbed that poor motorcyclist and dragged him out from under the car. Now, the policeman stood by, still keeping traffic, you know, stay back, stay back. But my point is the crowd solved the problem. They didn't need government to tell them, you may now do this, you may now do that. In fact, truth be told, the one government representative on the scene was um, hindering them, although he wasn't actively stopping them. So don't let anarchy scare you into thinking it's all Mad Max. You know, there, there are examples where, you know, it's, it's not such a terrible thing. In this case, George F. Smith asked, what is it about the free market that can provide almost all but not all of society's needs? And he asked, is it possible that's a myth or worse, a hoax? Let's look at a few examples. He says, why can't free men and women decide on their own to institute courts and advertise their benefits to the public? I know that's a that's a concept right there that gets people, whoa, what are we going to do? What would we do without our courts and our judicial system? Well, you would solve disputes the way that people used to do it without appealing to courts or without appealing to legislation. They would mediate. They would have town meetings. They would they would call together trusted people to help adjudicate a situation in the fairest way possible. You don't think it could happen again? I don't know. I think that, you know, maybe we're just telling ourselves that it can't. George F. Smith asks, wouldn't it be possible that some people would prefer the courts of A over the courts of B? See, that's why people get upset. Well, that would be competition. Couldn't they contract with others to agree on which courts to use in the case of a dispute? He asks, who among us would feel safe without a means of protecting ourselves from foreign invaders? Would this not be an incentive for companies to offer defense services and knowing they have competition to open up their operations for public inspection? Next, he asks, what would happen to the needy under a free market? Would they be left to perish in a so-called dog-eat-dog world? Other people acutely aware of their own vulnerability have proven to be charitable even in an age when government has grabbed the welfare reins. In the days before the welfare state, charity was the pride of the semi-free society we once had. Would income disparity exist under a free market government? Absolutely. Just as disparities exist among people in all areas of life. But the fortunes made by some would depend largely on their ability to satisfy customers, not on their non-existent political connections. Under coercive government, Burton Folsom's political entrepreneurs, the real robber barons, thrive at the public's expense. 
So when you hear anarchy, think free market. And remember all the blessings it has brought us. And when you hear government, think of war, the IRS, its response to 9-11, the war on drugs, critical race theory, the decimation of the dollar, the deep state, spying, the COVID hoax, stolen elections, and the rest of its contributions in our life. By the way, he's got some great footnotes or links to the various articles that he cites in this particular column. And you will find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please feel free to check it out and share it. So if you need a clear illustration of why government needs to be kept limited and its power checked at every turn, I have a good example for you. This is from Brad Palumbo at the Foundation for Economic Education. How a Florida woman got a $100,000 fine for parking on her own property. Yeah. This one strikes pretty close to home. You think maybe sometimes, or I used to think, well, you know, most of this, uh, this oh, heavy-handedness, that's on the part of the federal government. So that's where you got to watch it. Nope. Your local government will uh, do you dirty just as quick. In fact, sometimes quicker. Because after all, we're just doing this for your own good. This is what the people of our city want. In Brad Palumbo's article, he says, there's nothing worse than when you're having a bad day and you come back to your car to find a parking ticket on your windshield. Except, maybe... If that ticket was for $100,000 and you got it for parking on your own property. That's what happened to Sandy Martinez, a resident of Latana, Florida. Teaming up with attorneys at the Libertarian-leaning Institute for Justice, she is suing the town over a parking violation fine assigned to her that totaled more than $100,000. In fact, when combined with two other infractions... The total the city wants to take from Martinez comes to an astounding $165,000. And her lawsuit argues that such excessive fines over such minor offenses violate the Florida State Constitution, which forbids fines that are excessive or shock the conscience. That's according to the Institute for Justice's Ari Bargill. So here's the backstory as summarized by... The Institute for Justice. The 165000 that Sandy owes is the result of daily fines the city has assessed for property code violations. Most of this amount is a result of the way Sandy's family parks their cars. Sandy, her two adult children, and her sister all own cars so they can get to their jobs. When all four cars are parked in the driveway, sometimes one of them has two tires on the lawn. That's a $250 a day violation. And those fines continue to accrue until the homeowner corrects the problem and calls the city to inspect the property to confirm it's in compliance. After receiving the parking violation, Sandy called the town like she was supposed to, but an inspector never came out. Once Sandy discovered that the fines were still accruing over a year later, she immediately called and passed the inspection. But by then, the amount she owed was $101,750. This fine is on top of fines for two other similarly trivial violations, cracks in the driveway, and a fence that fell over during a storm. I have to pause here because we're coming up on the break, but I'm going to ask you, could you put yourself in this woman's shoes for just a moment? I mean, technically, she may have run afoul of some ordinance or, you know, some kind of city statute. Does it really constitute... Hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines accruing for the better part of a year. I think there's such a thing as too much government, and this may be a perfect example of it.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is from Brad Palumbo and about a Florida woman who got a $100,000 fine for parking on her own property. There were a couple other things she was fined for, a crack in her, cracks in her driveway and a fence that fell over during a storm, but it's that parking on her driveway, and because cars on her parked on her own property touched the grass, this woman was fined enormous sums, sums rather, by the city. Yeah, Seriously. It's surreal that the town still refuses to admit what it's doing is abusive and unfair, Martinez said. Like everyone else in my neighborhood, I work hard for what I've got. I shouldn't have to fight in court to stop the city from fining me into poverty. And Brad Palumbo says, indeed, she should not. We should all root for Martinez's cause and denounce the city's attempt to financially ruin homeowners over small things they do on their own property. Now, thankfully, Martinez's case is off to a good start with the Institute for Justice achieving a victory and having the city's attempt to dismiss the suit refused by a state court. But he says, less fortunately, this story is just one incident in an alarming national trend. As an Institute for Justice report exposes, cities across the country levy punishing fines on their citizens in order to fill their coffers. And the organization has fought similar injustices in parts of the country as diverse as California and Missouri. This story and its context are important to remember beyond just local municipal policy debates. It's yet another reminder that while big government advocates insist the state will uplift the struggling, the actual implementation of its power often hurts those who can least afford it. I do have a link, <clears throat> excuse me, in the in the show notes and would encourage you check it out for yourself. It's something you ought to uh, ought to at least consider. If they can do it to her, it can be done to you. If it's being done by her government, there's a good chance that your municipal government is looking at it going, huh, I wonder if we could get away with that. Something to think about. Okay, two other quick things here. Um, one of them I'm just going to introduce briefly, but I'm, gonna encourage, I'm going to encourage you to read this for yourself. It's a fairly lengthy article by Anthony Gill. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Anthony Gill is a professor of political economy at University of Washington. He's also a distinguished senior fellow with Baylor University's Institute for the Study of Religion. And it's an article on the high price of popcorn. Now, in particular... You know, if you like to go see a movie at the theater, he asks, what could go better with a fast-paced action flick than a giant tub of buttered popcorn? See, people are starting to return to pre-lockdown lives. That includes heading out to the local Cineplex to see a movie. But when they arrive, he says most will indubitably complain about the high price of popcorn. Movie popcorn's too expensive, my students shout. Not surprisingly, this grousing feeds the growing belief that businesses exist just to rip us off. But fortunately, he says the high, in quotation marks, price of popcorn provides a great opportunity to teach economic literacy and show that entrepreneurs are really helping us. Now, I don't want to spoil the surprise. I will tell you, though, it's worth your time. If you have forked out ten twenty-five for a little tub of or a large tub of popcorn at the movie theater, you know, you're paying for the equivalent of roughly two bags of microwave popcorn, which you can usually pick up for a buck a bag. 
maybe less. So the markup on popcorn at the movie theater is about five times what you would pay doing it for yourself while at home watching Netflix. But there are reasons why the movie theater does it the way that it does. And when you hear people say, well, they got a monopoly and they they won't let people go in there and, and eat anything but theater food. That's not exactly true. First of all, it's hard to enforce, you know, especially if your friend's wife carries a big purse and you have some, you know, milk duds and whatever in her purse. They're not sitting there doing searches of people's bags. At least most movie theaters won't. But I highly recommend this article, complete with charts and graphs, which explain all about the price discrimination, all about how the theaters, you know, they don't really have a monopoly on snacks or the idea that they only make money on concessions and not tickets. It's really informative stuff, and yet it's at a level that most all of us can understand. Bottom line is, the next time you reach for a handful of buttery popped popcorn, Anthony Gill says you should give a stomping cheer for the entrepreneurial creativity of the theater owner who made it possible for a wide variety of people to enjoy a summer blockbuster. It's a good object lesson. I guess particularly because I kind of like popcorn. So, you know, there it is. One final thought here, and this is uh, turning to my friend Jacob Hornberger. I love his ability to cut through partisan smoke screens to get to the principles at stake. His take on how to address critical race theory is really good because he says it's not just a matter of reform. The solution is to separate the state and education. He says conservatives and progressives are at it once again. They're attacking each other big time over whether critical race theory should be taught in secondary schools and colleges and universities. And the fundraising appeals are flying as each side exhorts people to send in donations to support whichever side is sending out the fundraising appeal. To which he answers, yawn. He says the controversy is no different in principle from one that entails, say, whether students should wear uniforms in school or whether colleges and universities should be permitted to praise Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in courses about the Civil War. He says, why do I find all this conservative, progressive, back and forth, boring and tedious? Because it's just an endless exercise in trying to make statism work. In other words, the positions taken by both conservatives and progressives aren't about freedom. They're about reform. They aim to reform the statist education system so that it suits their particular perspective or ideology. Now, what's the freedom response to all this statist silliness? Get government out of education entirely. Separate school and state at the the state and local level. No more public schools. No more licensing of private schools. No more elected school boards. No more school districts. No more compulsory attendance laws. No more school taxes. In other words, a total free market in education. Now, by the same token, no more state-supported colleges and universities. No more education grants. No more grants to build college and university buildings and facilities. No more state financial aid to students. No more taxes to fund colleges and universities. A total separation of colleges and universities at both the federal and state government levels. Colleges and universities would be voluntarily funded through donations and tuitions. Now, he says a separation of education and state would depoliticize the critical race theory controversy. All the hype would disappear. At the secondary level, parents would be free to have their children educated any way they choose. Some would choose educational vehicles that emphasize critical race theory. 
Others would choose the opposite. Some would ignore the controversy entirely. But parents would be free to choose their own educational plan for their children. It could be the same at the college or university level. Colleges and universities would be free to teach whatever they wanted. By the same token, students would be free to choose which college or university to attend. Jacob Hornberger says, Our American ancestors clearly understood the separation principle when it came to religion. If the state, local, or federal governments were involved in religion, the controversies would be endless, boring, and tedious, just as they are with education. The breathless fundraising letters being sent out by conservatives and progressives with respect to religious differences would be no different than those involving critical race theory and other controversial issues in education. He says our ancestors were wise to separate church and state. Notice that you don't see the hyped-up fundraising appeals by conservatives and progressives when it comes to religious differences or even controversies within churches. Instead, if people decide that a particular church or religion isn't for them, they simply switch. No political fights ensue. That's because the separation of church and state depoliticizes the religious differences and the church controversies. And so he says that's what we need in education. A separation of school and state at the federal, state, and local levels, just as our ancestors separated church and state. Not only would students benefit tremendously by having educational liberty, free them from government indoctrination, regimentation, and conformity, but he says the political fights within education would dissipate. I know for a lot of people that seems like, well, it's a pipe dream, Brian. It's never going to happen. It's just, it's, it's too good to be true. And yet they're forgetting that the system that we have right now, the way things are at this moment, is not how it always was. There was a time where state and school were separate things. Now, granted, yeah, we've had it for about 100 years. Seems like the income tax has been around for about 100 years, too. Do you see people clamoring? Boy, that was a great idea. I sure wish we had more of that. Maybe it's time to think a little bit differently. When you're dealing with an institution for whom force is an option and getting people to do business with it or to accept what it wants, yeah, you better believe force is going to be used and political power plays and tug of wars are going to break out every time an issue is touched by politics. Take the politics, take the force out of the situation. Nobody can compel your child to learn anything that you don't want your child to learn. And some people think that's a bad thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show.